this area, there's not a lot of tourists. Um, and some places which is um, considered a bit dangerous or very isolated. So you actually are forced to go through all these areas to, to get to wherever you want to go. So it makes me uh, appreciate every destination even more. And so this is um, Malaysia, the first country. Okay, even though I was traveling solo, I was hardly alone. I'm always uh, like meeting bikers uh, and making friends everywhere I go. I think when you're traveling solo, it's easier to make uh, friends. And uh, this is in Thailand. I had to overhaul my scooter. I left Singapore a total mechanical idiot, uh, but I think experience is the best teacher. Uh, so I, I picked up mechanical skills along the way. And then I went through Myanmar, uh, Northeast India. Okay, I went to Nepal and then back to mainland India again. And then I went through pa Pakistan and then finally here at the border of uh, Iran. Okay, so uh, this is the route that I traveled throughout Iran. So from all the way I came into um, from the Pakistan border, went through the Sistan Plain, which is uh, consists of part of Afghanistan and Pakistan, go down all the way to the south to the Persian Gulf, and then right all the way up north to the Caspian Sea, and then I left Iran uh, into the Caucasus region into Armenia. And as you can see, Iran, maybe uh, the impression of Iran is that, oh, it's a desert and there's going to be desert cities, very dry. But I don't think that's true. Actually, Iran has um, a lot of uh, diverse landscape to offer. Okay, so this is in Yas, uh, one of the desert cities. And then down to the south, there's also uh, lots of interesting islands in the Persian Gulf. And this is a Homos Island, uh, where the soy consists of different color, white, green, red. So I managed to, I, I did, I, I cycled over there. Lah. Yeah, and then uh, also you can, you're able to watch uh, turtle lay eggs uh, in the right season as well, okay, in the Persian Gulf. So from the islands up to the bustling city of Tehran, okay, and then there's also, if you go further up north, there's the large green mountains. And Iran, um, I would say that it has uh, lots of uh, history, okay? I'm just going to backtrack, okay, to how old things can get in Iran. So, okay, this is the Azadi Tower built in 1971 to celebrate the 2,500 years of the Persian Empire. Okay, and then this uh, Nasheed Jahan Square that is built in the 16th century. And then over here, you see this looks like a mosque, okay, looking at the dome. But actually, this is not a mosque. It is an Armenian church in Esfahan, which is built in the 17th century. So yes, majority of the people in Iran, they are Persians, but there's also other minorities, are Armenian, Georgians, uh, Azeris, uh, Baloch. So there are many different other ethnic groups and also religion in Iran as well. And so, um, get to appreciate um, the Islamic geometry in all these intricately designed mosques. This is one that uh, is built in Yas on the 14th century. And then going further back in time, okay, this is Ak Ibam 
it is an oasis that is situated um, at the crossroad of the Sioux trade routes. So it goes back to like 500, 300 BC. That's how old this place is. And then there's also the Sky Barrier Tower that dates back to 3,000 years ago. So these structures are known as Dagma, the, or known as the Tower of Silence. So this, this tower is uh, used by the Zoroastrian okay, for Sky Barrier. So they'll put uh, the deceased uh, in the, on the top there um, so that the bird of prey will feast on the bodies. And actually this tower, they were still in use until the 1970s. Uh, at that time, it was banned. And then even going further back down, now we are going back to 5,000 years ago. Okay, this place is near um, the Sistan Plains, the area between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, so this is one of the earliest urban uh, settlements that was ever excavated. So there were unbelievable evidence of technological advance that were unearthed over there. Uh, some of the examples of the things that they found there were like skull with uh, evidence of brain surgery. They also found an artif artificial eyeball on one of um, the bodies. Okay, it dates back to 2900 BC. And even there was an oldest mat animation was found. So there was some animation that was carved onto a pottery. So when you spin, okay, it looks like um, the characters on the pot, they are moving. So this settlement that appeared around 3200 BC during the Bronze uh, Age. And yeah, so this city had, was actually burned down quite a few times before it was abandoned in 1800 BC. So in that area, there was like almost 900 bronze edge, edge uh, sites uh, being documented in the system plane. Okay, and then how about the people? Yes, uh, just now I mentioned that um, there are lots of ethnic groups in, um, in, in Iran as well. Okay, so like from the Baluchi in the southeast, the Azeri in the northwest, the Kurdish. And I will say that the at me trying to get me to stop and when I finally stopped he came over to pass me uh, a bag of sunflower seeds okay so Iranian loves to feed their guests and so this is a problem for me because I'm riding a scooter I have limited luggage space so sometimes in one day I can get all this food from from strangers so these are sweets and food from three different people and I have trouble fitting everything in and also Iranians, um, they are masters of picnicking. So they can picnic anywhere, anytime, even on those like narrow strips of grass patch between roads, right? Even at 11 p.m., I still see people picnicking uh, in between the roads. So because even at home, right, they eat on the floor. So they put a plastic sheet, a picnic style. Uh, so here I am again, I was invited to join a family for, for their meals. And I was happened to be in this park during the Persian New Year. Uh, the Persian New Year, which is the Nowruz uh, holiday. So what Iranians, they love to do is that um, they, they will just go picnicking or just go somewhere far away to camping. That's how they celebrate their Persian New Year on top of visiting as well. 
So I see there's so many uh, families there camping. So I also pitched my, my tent. Okay, so this is my humble little tent. And of course, I have a lot of uh, Iranian neighbors. So, so this is uh, one of my, my neighbors. Um, so they were very kind. A lot of times when they were having uh, meals, they will invite me over. And then when um, they're playing, they'll invite me to play with the kids. Um, sometimes when I'm inside the tent, and then they want to ask me out for food because they cannot remember my name. Uh, they did think that I'm from China. They would just go, China, China, food, food. Uh, yeah, so uh, that was how I get my food. And at times when I'm sleeping inside the tent, I sleep late. And then when I wake up, I will find food outside my tent as well. So you can see this is their kitchen. So they transform the back of a, a pickup truck into a kitchen. So yeah, I think, you know, they, they fed me so much. I think, yeah, Iran is actually quite dangerous to the waistline. And a lot of times, uh, sometimes I buy food, strangers come and talk to me, like these two gentlemen, I was buying corn to eat. And then they end up chatting with me. So with our limited uh, English and Persian and using Google Translate, I try to make conversation with them. And then they end up paying for my food. And yeah, um, so a lot of times I just get all these random acts of kindness from, from strangers. And sometimes uh, all these acts of kindness and hospitality goes beyond just uh, a food, a meal. I also get Iranians uh, opening up their homes to me. Uh, just like this uh, gentleman, Muhammad uh, Yaqob. Uh, I, I met him at a grocery shop. Uh, I was buying food uh, to prepare for wild camping later on. And he saw me and he heard my plans to go wild camping somewhere. And he said, no, 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 today you, my house, you, my guest, you come my house. And when I got to his place, he showed me around his um, home and he, he told me in uh, English, say, my house, your house, same, same, you, me. Uh, it means, you know, treat my house like yours, okay, don't be shy. Okay, and then uh, also this is another family that um, I managed to track. Uh, they are friends. Um, eh, they, are, they hosted my friends many years ago. So I didn't have any telephone number or their address. I just had a GPS location of their old shop. And I managed to track them down and reconnect them with my friends. I think Iranians, they are so friendly. All it takes is on... Um, eye contact, okay, so you're just walking down the street, someone you just look at someone, and then they'll smile back at you, uh, and then a conversation starts. So on, in this case, I was trying to borrow uh, tools from a car mechanic, and I end up sitting with them, having a meal, and those two guys, they brought me out uh, to see a rally race, and all. And also, they also managed to help me to connect to some local Iranian bikers, who helped me to fix my scooter as it was having some issues. So these are the guys who repaired my scooter. Um, so they did a lot of work. They bought me like exhaust, uh, piston, and lots of spare parts. They spent two days working on my scooter. And when I want to pay them back, uh, they told me, oh, pay me back when you come back to Iran, okay, or when you finish your trip. Uh, so my gratitude debt in uh, Iran is uh, quite high. Uh, so I, I have to go back there someday to repay this guy. But however, I think also, yes, Iranians, they are very, very kind. They look very kind. You know, they will offer their things to you. But 
I think you also you do not should should not take the kindness in face value too, uh, because uh, there is something called tarot. Okay, uh, what is tarot? Okay, tarot is um a ritual politeness. Okay, it's very similar to the Chinese version of Mao. So it's the Iranian form of uh, civility and art of etiquette. Okay, like for example, over here I was at the one of the cycling around the island. Uh, so this uh, gentleman invited me over for lunch and he was cooking um, some fishes and he wanted me to take the last piece of fish. So I say, oh, no, 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 you take it. At that time, I know what is tarot. So I tell him no. Um, in the end, he, he say, you don't tarot with me. Uh, so that means that um, tarot is like, how to say, uh, when somebody offers you something, you don't just take it at the first instant. Actually, you must reject it. Okay, if you accept it at the first, uh, first hint, right, it will be a lead to a very awkward uh, situation because they are supposed to offer something when people compliment it or just you know, offer their help, but you have to say no. But of course, you have to say no, like at least insist three times, then you'll, find, you'll know that whether is it a tarot or a genuine offer. So like for example, this gentleman, um, he's a tailor, so he helped me fix my back. Okay, the strap was broken. So, um, so after he repaired, and then we, during, while he was repairing my, my back, we made some small conversation with my friend uh, translating for me. And then uh, once he was done, then I, I offered him um, some money to pay for his service. I asked him how much. So in the end, he replied, he said, oh no, this is just a, a, a small word. It's not worthy of your payment. So that is tarot. Okay. So I have to insist. No, no, no. I can't let you do that. You must accept my payment. Then he will say, oh no, no, no. It's okay. It's okay. So you must do this back and forth three times. Okay. And then, yes, you pay. So if, so at the third, uh, third time, okay, it means that uh, if he still resists, it means that he genuinely wants to offer it to you. But usually after the third time, you know, if it's not a tarot, they will just, if it's a tarot, they will, they will accept the payment. So one thing the downside about tarot is that uh, sometimes I get false promises, like people saying yes to me, but uh, not meaning it. Uh, I encountered it a few times when I had problems. I need to ask somebody to help me uh, get something. I say, you know, yeah, I will, I will pay you and things like that. But then they say, yes, yes, yes. But in the end, they went missing in action. And then I couldn't get my, 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 my items. So that is one downside of Tarot. So for people who are traveling to Iran, yeah, I think this is something to take note. Yeah, people may be very kind to offer you things, but you need to insist on rejecting it for three times. Okay? You know, it'd be a very awkward situation. Okay, and then uh, when it comes to language-wise, okay, this is my, I think, third day in Iran. And I was uh, staying in this inn with shared toilet. And this is the toilet. I can't differentiate which is the male or the female. Yeah, anyway, so uh, in Iran, the language is um, Persian, okay, not Arabic. So Persians, they are very, very proud of it. They don't like to be confused with, with Arabic. Um, so yeah, just think, okay, they are Persian, they speak Persian. 
but the writing is uh, based on the Arabic uh, writings. And of course, you know, I, I, over there, I get to learn language, the language from the locals as well. Uh, I realized that their greetings uh, and day-to-day -day conversations is really filled with politeness and uh, are very, very poetic. Um, so, like, there's elements of tarot in the daily conversation as well. So, like, for example, when you're entering a shop, Okay, so uh, normally people will say kasenabashi. It means I hope you are not tired. And then like after a meal, okay, at a person's place or after, when you're leaving a restaurant, okay, then they will say datsutun da nakone, means may your hands not hurt. And when somebody compliments you, okay, so the other person should reply, oh, it's because your eye sees beautifully, as a form of thank you. Okay, and then, okay, this is how Iranians drink tea. So, they have this uh, stick with, uh, coated with sugar. You can use it to stir their sugar uh, into the, the tea. Or uh, sometimes uh, you have cubes. So, they will offer you uh, sugar cubes and tea, uh, but without any spoon. So, you're not supposed to put the sugar into the, into the tea and stir it. You're supposed to put the sugar cube into your mouth and then sip um, the tea slowly. And then just let, the sugar dissolve as you sip it. Okay, so in a lot of countries that I've been to, tea is always offered as a gesture of a hospitality. Um, so, okay, in, per in Persian, tea is called chai. Okay, in uh, Urdu, in Turkish, it's also called chai. Um, and then, okay, uh, maybe you'll be, uh, I just want to ask, okay, think about the different language that you know. How do you say tea in that language? Okay, I assume most of you can speak English, right? Okay. So, tea is tea. In Malay, it's called te. In Hokkien, it's called te. In Mandarin, it's called cha. Uh, so, why is it that uh, in the world, there's only two different ways of uh, saying tea? It's either along, something along the line of uh, te, tea, or cha or chai. Okay? Um, so, one interesting revelation as I was traveling around the world and being offered tea everywhere, I realized that actually the word tea came from China. Because China is the botanical homeland of uh, tea. So if you look at um, this graph, so coming into China, okay, if you say it in Mandarin, it's called cha. So if the tea is introduced to a country by the land route, like for example, the silk route, okay, it is called cha or chai or che in their language. But if it is uh, introduced to a country by the sea route as shown in the blue line, Okay, so the tea usually are shipped out uh, from Minan, means the Fujian province. So if you are a Hokkien speaker, you know that tea in Hokkien is uh, teh. So that's why in Malay, in Indonesia, it is called teh. Okay, in English, in Dutch, it's called tea, tea. And all these countries over here where the tea is introduced by land, it's called cha. Okay, and then when it comes to music, okay, this, this girl, her name is Raha. She made a documentary film on uh, Ibrahim Mosafi, who is like a Bob Mali of uh, Iran. 
So her film was screened on a film festival and she, the documentary was a lot about music. So there was a very interesting uh, observation she noticed about uh, music in Iran. Like especially in the desert, in the oasis, where people are forced to live close together. Okay? And if you realize that you know it is more conservative, and you see women uh, veiling themselves, you know they will be really shy. It's not so open, so the music there are more uh, solemn and slow. And then in places where it is very open, like uh, in the south, where there is the sea and there is uh, the wave, okay, music over there they are more how to say mm, fast. Okay, and the tempo like goes along with the ocean wave as well. Okay, and although there is no nightclubs or pubs uh, in Iran, uh, but there's no shot of uh, nightlife. And so I just want to bring you to uh, Isfahan. There's a bridge called the Kaju Bridge. And over here, there's like gentlemen. <laughs> Okay, so there's a lot of like camaraderie through music um, in the public spaces. And also uh, in, um, this is uh, the Hafiz tomb. So Hafiz is a very influential uh, poet. And the Iranians, I realized they really, really love their poems. So over here, I also can hear people um, singing poetry, reciting poetry. Um, yeah, and, and a lot of um, household, right, in writing household, they will definitely have like a, a book with a Hafiz poem. And also, I would say that, um, yeah, the art forms, right, such as like dance, music, they can be quite heavily censored in Iran. So some of them, they have to go underground. Um, and also, there's also music such as uh, contemporary uh, music, fused with traditional ones. So sometimes I go to a cafe uh, and just listen to um, yeah, a very interesting blend of music such as this. Just one example, and I will say that yes, a lot of uh, some of some of these performance, right? Um, they are not uh, how to say they have to go underground, and sometimes in these underground uh, gigs, um, sometimes you can see, hear them singing about taboo subjects, okay, like sexual repression. Uh, I remember there was a guy who was performing a song. He was serenading to a local brand of uh, shampoo. And the audience, they were laughing like crazy. Uh, so I leave it to your imagination to draw the link between shampoo and sexual repression. 
Okay, so, and also Iran, mm, yeah, uh, in Iran as a woman, you have to, it's compulsory to wear headscarf. And I would say that wearing of the headscarf is more like due to the, the law rather than the culture. In fact, a lot of women that I met, they told me they disapprove of the compulsory headscarf. They think that it should not be forced on people because religion is a personal expression of spirituality and it should not be forced down on people. So it's very common to see a lot of women, they try to test the limit of the mandatory headscarf rule by wearing it really, really, really far back, you know, up to their ponytail. Um, so the restriction in the expression of beauty, right, through clothing, yeah, they, they cannot, you know, wear nice form-fitting clothes uh, and all. So they did it through makeup. In fact, an Iranian friend, he jokingly told me, or maybe he was serious about it. He said that, hey, you come to Iran, you know, instead of buying a souvenir, picking up a souvenir, you should pick up a skill. Uh, you should learn from the girls how to wear makeup. They, yeah, it's something that they really got to do with the eyebrows. So, yes, I think, yes, Iranian women, I think they are really, really beautiful. Um, yeah, they really know how to wear their makeup. But some of them also take to the extreme end such as to go onto plastic surgery. So when I was in Iran, uh, I saw a lot of women with plasters on their nose. So I was like wondering, why, what, what happened? Did they get into fight or something and they broke their nose? So my, my Iranian friend told me, oh, didn't you know? Iran is like one of the, is a nose job country. Uh, a lot of uh, these ladies, uh, they go for surgery. So they go for that ski slope uh, shape on their nose. So, and then after the surgery, they wear, instead of like resting at home, you know, they have no qualms wearing the plasters out in the public. So the plaster on their nose is like a, a status symbol of some sort. Okay, and also the public and the private image are very different. So yes, in the media, you see that uh, in the public, the women, they are all built. But behind closed door, it was quite a very, it's a very different image. Very often when I enter the homes, right, um, a lot of the ladies or even like, guys was like saying, you know, um, if you want to remove your headscarf, uh, feel free to do so. I'm not the government. I will not force you to wear it in my home. Uh, and this uh, lady over here, she's a volleyball coach. Um, so I, I joined her for one of the volleyball training. So it was behind closed door. Um, so it's only for, for women. So you see all the, a lot of women, they come in with their headscarf, you know, they all wearing their jackets, everything. And then behind the clothes wall, they took everything out. Then some of them have really colorful, funky colored hair. Some of them have tattoos. And then they were like wearing shorts, tank tops, and playing volleyball. But of course, I can't take a photo of that because uh, it is um, not allowed. And the strict laws in, in, in Iran has also led to some paradoxical situations. So you see, alcohol is banned, but I found alcohol in the form of Jack Daniel. Uh, in a supermarket. However, a lot of households, they actually make their own alcohol at home. I think it's human psychology also. The more you forbid something, the more people want it. In fact, I was offered alcohol so many times in Iran. And yeah, unfortunately, it's also is a, is a hidden. Alcoholism is also an unspoken uh, issue in Iran as well. Um, because, you know, the poor economy and also oppression has also turned people to drinking as a way to cope with frustration. And yes, although there's not 
uh, no pubs and clubs. Uh, there's, there's actually a lot of underground parties. Um, so you can see women coming in, okay, yeah. Okay, all cover up and then they go to the room, they get changed and then they come out like in sexy dresses, miniskirt and uh, dancing and partying the night away. And so, okay, um, so now I've uh, talked about some Iran. Of course, yes, Iran seems like really a very friendly country, but when you are there for long enough, you start to see some of the vices and the problems over there as well. So, uh, like in any other countries, there are, there are discriminations. So, in Iran, it's actually a country that um, hosts quite a huge um, uh, number of refugees. Um, there are more than one million refugees, mostly from Afghanistan. And they are from this um, ethnic min uh, minority from Afghanistan called the Hazara. So you can see the Hazara people, they have East Asian features. Uh, I look like them. And a few times I'm also mistaken as uh, an Afghani refugee. So they are prosecuted during the civil war in Afghanistan. So many of them fled to Iran for refuge. However, the discrimination didn't end there as well in, in Iran. Um, so I remember, I, so you see when I was wearing the shirwa kamis that I got from Pakistan and with my headscarf, you can see that I really can pass off as a, as a Hazara. Okay, so Iranians are really known to be polite, but my treatment at the Ministry of Alien Affairs was a bit different. I was trying to extend my visa over there and I was being bounced from one counter to another counter. Um, at one time, I was, I found myself queuing behind this lady. Okay, look like me, okay, with East Asian feature. Um, and in her hand, she was holding an Afghanistan black passport. So I was queuing behind her. Then when, when I got to the counter, I showed my red passport and it was like, oh no, uh, actually, you are at that counter. And that was a counter I was previously at and I got pulled out from there to go to the other counter. So I think the officers thought that I was an Afghani refugee and that's why they pulled me out from my original queue. And I would say that, yeah, you know, the world can be very, very superficial. You are judged by your appearance and, and, and you know, not who you are. Um, yes, Iranians are friendly, but I realized there's a difference okay, when I was working with my European friends. So this is my German and Croatian friend with blue eyes, brown hair. When I was walking with them, a lot of people came out to say, hello, hi, welcome to Iran. And this was the, the treatment I didn't really get when I was wearing my Shewa kamis walking alone. Uh, and yes, you know, this made me realize that, yes, you can go to the same country uh, and then meet the same people, but uh, your experience may be different because your gender, your look, your ethnicity, nationality, age, all this actually do affect your travel experience. So no two travel experiences are the same. So for my this uh, German friend, we went through Pakistan together and then I meet him again in Iran, over here. So we were exchanging our experience. So uh, I realized that he actually had an easier time in Iran than in Pakistan, whereas I had an easier time in Pakistan than in Iran. Okay, and then also, yes, although, yes, I'm cover up, 
Um, but I, as a solo female traveler, this is uh, one issue I think it has to be addressed as well. I did get men asking me for sex a few times. Okay, some requests were very, very subtle suggestions. Okay, some were very obvious, like this in the photo. So they helped my stranded scooter after, uh, when my scooter was like stuck um, in the sand. Then after that, they came back and they started gesturing for, for sex. So uh, this was obvious, very, very obvious. So I cannot help but to get an impression that Iran uh, can be a very sexually repressed uh, society as well. So like films, music, videos, and porn, they can be some of the men's only insight into the lives of foreign women. So they have this, probably some of them have this impression that foreign women is like easy to bait. So what more, you know, a woman that's traveling by herself. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't say that it is all fairy tales and nice. Uh, there are issues over there as well. And of course, you know, there are cabins that is designated for, for women uh, in the metro. So this is not something that is unique okay, to Iranian society. I think also this, you also have this uh, women's only cabin in India as well. And another issues that actually kind of maybe upset me a little was uh, women's rights. Okay, one way, one is, yes, first, it's mandatory to wear the headscarf. They have no say in how they want to dress. And also, women do not have the rights uh, to procure license to ride motorcycle. So they can't ride motorcycle in the public on the street. However, I this this uh, lady, her name is uh, Benas Shafie. Uh, She's a professional motocross racer. So since I can't ride you know, in, on the streets, never mind, see, I will take it to the track. Um, so there was a few incidents whereby because my status as a woman, uh, it prevented me from doing certain things. Uh, like I remember Benas was trying to bring me um, to a motocross track and she wanted to show me around and she was shouting in the phone, uh, angry. I was like, why? What happened? Uh, she said, oh, they didn't allow us to enter the track because uh, we are women. And also another time, a group of uh, motorcycle, uh, motorcycle enthusiasts, they were so helpful. They helped me fix my scooter, helped me get the things I need. And then they say, oh, tomorrow there is a, a race going on at a motorcycle track. Uh, but they were very hesitant on bringing me to the track because they were afraid that, uh, you know, because me as a woman, I'm, I'm not allowed there. So there may be some issue. Okay, and then next, I went on to Turkey. So in Turkey, I spent around three months over there. I think in a lot of uh, Muslim countries, right, mm, they treat their guests very, very well. It's part of, um, you know, their belief. So the word Musafir often pop up uh, in our conversation. So this is the first day in, in Iran uh, after I, I, I left Georgia. And at that time, I didn't have uh, a SIM card, so I couldn't contact uh, my friend. So I approached uh, this police officer on the left, asking if I can borrow his phone to call my friend. Then I asked him, hey, where can I get a SIM card and where, do, uh, where can I have my lunch? So he helped me with all this and then brought me to the restaurant. Then he helped me order the food. And when I want to pay for my food, um, the waiter told me, oh, no, 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 policeman 
paid for, for your food. So there's all these random gestures uh, like that. So I didn't even get to thank him for the meal. And also again, uh, in this small town called Araj, it's not really a tourist spot, it's just a stopover for me. Um, I, I, I parked into this, um, the pavement in front of the hotel and he crossed over the road and, and, and beckoned me to go to his restaurants to have a meal. So he did this all through gesture. Um, so, okay, I, I just, you know, unpacked my stuff, then I went to his restaurant. Uh, so he asked me if I want this, this, this is pointing things on the menu. I was like, okay. And then when I want to pay for, for the food, again, he pushed my wallet away and he said, who suffer, who suffer. Um, so again, this uh, acts of kindness just always show up itself. And also this gentleman also uh, allowed me to do the flying fox one round for free. And so a lot, I was able to connect with the motorcycle uh, clubs in, in Turkey. So I was handed from one biker club to another biker club in the next town. So all in all, I was very, very well taken care of. So this is one gentleman, he's also a biker. He hosted me for a few days, showed me around. And uh, I got to celebrate my birthday uh, with this uh, host as well. And this is um, Mehmet Ali. His dream is also to ride around the world. Um, so when he saw my scooter, you know, with all the flags from different countries, and he was like very, very interested in hosting me. And he said, oh, when you come to Antalya, okay, feel free to look up to me. Um, yeah, and this was also another family who hosted me. His, uh, her husband is a biker. And this is also another family of bikers. Okay, and then in, uh, in Turkey, there's a lot of very interesting sites that uh, maybe you're not sure. Uh, there's probably unheard of. Like, for example, this is um, the house of Mary. It is believed that Mary uh, lived here after the passing of um, Jesus Christ. So this is a, a pilgrimage site for Muslims and also Christians in the area. And then there's also uh, Pamukkale. There is this uh, ancient Greco-Roman city of uh, Herapolis. So behind, on top of this uh, basin, right, there's actually a lot of um, archaeological site. Like for example, this very, very well-preserved Roman theater. And then going to the southwest, there's also the Asian area, the Asian Sea. And it is a good place to, to hike. Okay, there's actually a 500km marked hiking trail called the Lycian Way. So, um, along this way, you can actually pass by a lot of uh, ancient tombs. But unfortunately, I didn't do this hike because I was on a scooter. Because the tracks, they are not accessible by roads. So, I got to know about this, all these hikes uh, from other hikers uh, in campsite as well. And this is the famous Cappadocia. Um, so actually, Turkey is quite an established uh, tourist destination. Uh, my position as a guest I mean different, uh, can mean differently in the tourist spot. It's not one of uh, sanctity, but you know that of like money and profit. So you know, very often I was often tea by people. You know, they just want to chat and talk with you. Uh, however, when I was in Cappadocia, I was offered tea by a carpet seller. So uh, drinking after drinking the tea. He was trying very, very hard to sell me carpets. Uh, 
which you know I can't carry it on my scooter. And one thing I really love about Iran, what really impressed me, uh, sorry, what really impressed me about Turkey is that, you know, how the people actually treat the animals, how animals and human coexist in the cities. I wouldn't call these animals strays, but I would call them community animals. Um, uh, it's very common to see dogs and cats sitting, you know, next to people's feet in the cafes, and people wouldn't flinch. They just like let them be. Um, yeah, I, I cannot help to notice how well animals are treated and integrated into the community. And sometimes along the street, yeah, I see there are food that that's left for animals. Uh, and also there are low water springs in the park that is built for animals to drink. So uh, my host in um, Ismail, whenever we had our meals and if there are some leftover, she will pack them away instead of throwing it away. So I asked her like, Why are you, who are you packing all this food for? Oh, she said that, oh, I bring this to the animals. So she'll bring these animals, uh, I'll bring this uh, food um, downstairs, you know, and, and feed the animals uh, whenever she leaves the house. So like, yeah, uh, also on a closer look, yeah, some of these animals, they look really well looked after. Okay, like this cat who lost, which lost an eye, um, yeah, you know, I think somebody actually brought it to the vet to get some medical care. And outside many shops, I noticed there are bowls of food and water. So this is uh, one thing that left a lasting impression on me for, for Turkey. So you know, the greatness of the nation can be judged by the way people, how people treat the animals, right? This is a, a quote by Gandhi. Okay, and then, uh, so this is uh, me leaving um, Turkey. Um, so, okay, just a, a, a just quick advice. I'm nearing my end of my presentation. So, uh, when setting out of a journey, uh, do not seek advice from those who never left home. So, if you want to do like a big trip, go on an adventure, I think the best people to ask if, is from people who did it, not from people who have never done it. So, people who have never done it, probably they don't do it because they have their fears. But, you know, don't let other people impose their fears on you because you are you. Okay, uh, so I just want to sh uh, end off by sharing this quote um, about travel. Why I think travel can actually um, change the world. Because I think travel is uh, fatal to prejudice and bigotry and narrow-mindedness. So if we can actually see people as they are, uh, rather than generalize people, stereotyping them for the sake of simplicity, I think it will help to promote a more tolerant and understanding world. So after this, this entire two years trip, I'm very glad that uh, I got to the opportunity to speak at uh, many events. Okay. And yeah, uh, I was also invited to, to Dubai to, to speak um, a year ago. So if you ask me what uh, the two years has uh, taught me on the road. So getting to meet so many people, uh, so many different people from different countries. Uh, it has taught me that we should not let the politics of a nation shape the way we think about the people. And people that we have more in common than we think. But however, you know, media has always been uh, vilifying uh, certain nations. Uh, but government do not re re necessarily represent the people and vice versa. Okay, so uh, uh, I always share my stories, mini stories on the Wandering Wasp. Um, so you can follow me on Facebook or Instagram.
Okay, so thank you very much.